Friends, if you're part of our service online, if you're watching live or, or as, the, as the YouTube service is available later, and you want to take part in being the first Sunday of the month, we will come at the close of our service to the Lord's table. Jesus hosts the Lord's Supper for us. He's the host, and you are invited to come and partake of the bread and the cup and remember what Jesus did for us. And if you want to take part in that, and, you know, even live, you can hit the pause button on the computer at home or your phone, and you can get some elements, a cup and bread, and participate with us a little bit later. As I like to say, this is, a, this is open communion. It's for everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus as their Savior, and they want to celebrate what He has done for them. Friends, uh, as you see on the, the screen behind me, we're continuing a series of messages that give us a window into Jesus. We know him by that name, Jesus, which comes from the Greek word Yezu, which comes from the Aramaic word Yeshua, which comes from the Old Testament name Joshua, means the Lord's salvation. It's a perfect name for a Savior. But we see in Scripture, as I was reminded at Christmas time, all of the names and titles that are given to Jesus, including Emmanuel, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, all of these wonderful titles. And as we remind you each week that in the Bible, especially uh, that Hebrew culture coming out of Old Testament times, names were far more than labels to tell us apart. They spoke of who we are, who we are on the inside, our character, our destiny, all of that was part of a name. To know a person's name, the name of a person is to know the true person. When we do something in the name of Jesus, we're doing it in Jesus' stead, in His place. He is in us and through us. The name of God is mighty because it speaks of who God is in His holy character. Well, we've been looking at names and looking at other titles and so forth. And as I mentioned a little bit earlier, the name that we're going to be speaking of today looks at Jesus. It's not a name He takes to Himself, but it is a title that is applied to Him. And it's a picture of Him and what He has done to, for us throughout Scripture. The Lamb of God. Now, there's a question. There's a question that I think it's asked all the way in the first book of the Bible. Kids, what's the first book of the Bible? Good kids. Genesis. Genesis. Genesis in Greek. It means beginnings. The beginnings. It's the beginning of everything. It's the beginning of mankind. The beginning of heaven and earth. It's the beginning of all of our problems. Because it's the beginning of sin. But when sin began, God's grace was greater. And there are questions asked, and there's pictures of God's plan of salvation all the way back in the book of Genesis. Do you remember that one of the most gut-wrenching stories in the book of Genesis is the story where God speaks to Abraham. He was known as Abram. Now he's Abraham, the father of faith. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. God promised him an heir, a son, that he would make a great nation through his descendants. And they had to wait for a century until they're a, a hundred years old and that child comes along. Having that child, all of the promises were fulfilled. But then out of the blue, God tells Abraham to sacrifice his only son, to sacrifice him. You remember the story. It's heartbreaking. As a parent, as a grandparent, you put yourselves in his sandals. He takes his son, and his son and he, they carry the makings of a sacrifice. 
and they go to the mountain that God showed them. mountain that I believe is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem now. Mount Moriah. And they're going there. And along the way, Abraham's son, Isaac, he asks this question all the way back in Genesis. He poses a question. We find the story in Genesis chapter 22. As they're going, I'll start a little earlier. It said, Abraham took wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? He didn't know that he was the sacrifice. And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. God will provide. Where is the lamb? Well, we know that God was testing Abraham's faith and, and Isaac was spared and a ram was caught in a thicket and there was a sacrifice because the sacrificial, though the sacrificial system was not instituted yet, from the time of Adam and Eve, we saw sacrifices, animals who shed their blood to remind us that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. But the question hung in the air and it hung in the ages. Where is the lamb? And friends, I believe that that answer came in the life of Jesus. We remember in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 35, the ministry of John the Baptist. It says, The next day John was there with two of his disciples, and when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. They'd been followers and disciples of John. Now they became followers of Jesus. Father, where is the Lamb? God will provide. Look, the Lamb of God. <laughs> That's the salvation story. The need is ages old. The need of all mankind. Sinners in need of a Savior. The wages of sin is death. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. We needed the true Lamb, not the blood of bulls and goats. We needed God's Lamb. So this morning's message is the Lamb of God. That's the title, the Lamb of God. Jesus is our Lamb. As we've looked at names and titles of Jesus in weeks gone by, we were understanding more about who He is. He's the bread of life. He gives us life. What He's done for us. He's our guide. He's our shepherd. How much we need Him. He's the vine. We're the branches. We don't live unless we live in Him. Abide in Me. But when it comes to the Lamb of God, through that title and the teaching of the Lamb in Scripture, we are shown what Jesus has accomplished for us, what we needed and what He did for you, the price that He paid because of His great love for you. <laughs> I was reminded yesterday, something Max Licato said in the applause of heaven, how much God loves you. He says, your picture is on God's fridge. <laughs> 
It's kind of a comical way to put it. Think of all the people whose pictures are on your fridge. They're there because you love them. You're praying for them. You're supporting them. Your picture's on God's fridge. And the Lamb of God shows us how much God loves you and what He's done for you. The Lamb of God. In the story of the Lamb in Scripture, we see it begin to come into focus. There is a technical thing we won't go into depth in called typology. That there, and that's a Greek word. It's tupos in Greek. And there are antitypes, antitupos. When you say type and antitype, you're speaking Greek. And that means there are pictures. Before something comes to pass, God gives us a picture of it that when the reality comes, we're able to understand it. For instance, when the children of Israel go down into the water, when God parts the waters of the Red Sea and they come out, Apostle Peter says that was a type, that was a picture of baptism going in and coming out. You know, it helps us understand the reality, the spiritual reality later. All throughout Scripture, we see the Lamb of God as a picture of Jesus that will help us understand when the reality finally comes. And the first of that is the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb. You know the story. God's people, they go as refugees from a famine. They go as a family into Egypt. And then centuries later, they're no longer a family. They've grown, as God promised, into a nation. But a new dynasty of pharaohs has come along and they see them not as friends and guests, but as a threat and as slave labor. And the people are oppressed as slaves. God raises up a shepherd, Moses, let my people free so they may worship me in the wilderness. And part of that was the series of plagues where God exhibited his power over the gods, the false gods of Egypt. All of those plagues are in line with Egyptian gods and shows the power of God over the Egyptian gods. And yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened until the final, the greatest plague of all, is that God has the power of life and death. And He exhibits it by hitting us where it hurts most. He takes away the firstborn of animals and of all the people. And of that great plague, God said for His people, the children of Israel, to be spared, they needed the blood of the Passover lamb. As you see in that picture, the blood was applied to the doorposts and the lintels of their homes dipped the blood of a lamb without blemish and applied with a hyssop branch to their doors. We see that story, that foundational story of faith and what God was doing in salvation in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 12, begin reading in verse 5. God speaking to them of the Passover situation. He says, The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. And you may take them from sheep or goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs because then the lamb provided the foundation of the Passover meal. Now, of course, Passover comes from what would happen the angel of death visiting Egypt will pass over any house 
under the blood. The blood interposes itself between the angel of death and those within. It's a powerful picture. Jesus' blood interposes between God's wrath and ourselves. We are covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. We'll continue down, a little further down in verse 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses when you, where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The wrath of God fell upon the people and the animals. But those covered by the blood were spared. The blood of a lamb without blemish. God is beginning to plant the seeds of our understanding of what Jesus will do for us one day. Well, it becomes even clearer when God's people are out of Egypt and they're in God's great schoolhouse, the wilderness, for 40 years. During that time, we see God institutes the system of sacrifices and the system of the law. God gave them a yoke on their neck and on their shoulders called the law. I call it a burden because that's what Scripture calls it. In the New Testament, when the early church, who were Jews up until that time, were debating among themselves at the Council of Jerusalem, should Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus have to obey the Jewish law? And they say, oh no, we are not going to put that burden that we couldn't bear upon them. You see, the law was given to teach us that we're sinners. Not how to reach God through your personal goodness and obedience because you can't and it was there to teach us that we are lawbreakers and sinners in need of a savior the part of that great lesson was the system of sacrifices where people were vividly taught that they are sinners and that their sin leads to death through the sacrificial animals Now, there are different kinds of sacrifices spelled out. There's the sin sacrifice. There's the guilt sacrifice. There's the fellowship offering, sin, guilt, fellowship offerings, all of them using animals. And before that animal was sacrificed, very often the sinful person bringing the sacrifice was called to, as you've seen us, lay their hand upon the head of that animal, transferring their guilt to this animal and then seeing the result of their sin as that animal was killed and its blood poured out. What a difficult, hard lesson to see. We read that, for instance, as far as the guilt offering in Leviticus chapter 4. This is one of many, many examples in the Old Testament. It says, If he brings a lamb as his sin offering, he's to bring a female without defect. He's to lay his hand on its head and slaughter it for a sin offering at the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar, teaching vividly the lesson, the wages of sin is death. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission, no forgiveness of sin. That sacrificial animal vividly portrayed it 
as the time of the prophets came along, the sacrificial lamb, which was now such a part of the understanding and religious practice, the real spiritual DNA of Israel, the prophets began to reveal that God had a lamb coming, but it wasn't going to be an animal. Because God reveals in the Old Testament that truly the blood of bulls and goats can't touch the problem of sin in the human heart. It's a human problem. And a human of God's choosing will be the true sacrifice. We see, for instance, that powerful chapter in Isaiah 53, the, pas- the passage is speaking of the, the, uh, the suffering servant. The suffering servant. For instance, Isaiah 53, verse 7 says that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. God's lamb was foretold. And this lamb, one going like a sheep to its shearers, who is silent and not resisting its fate, the suffering servant is going to be Jesus. The rabbis don't know what to do with this chapter. Many places they look at the suffering servant songs in Isaiah and they say, well, that's, that's either a prophet or a king or that's Israel as a nation. But when it comes to this, they actually tell many of their students, never read this chapter. It'll only confuse you because it so clearly points to Jesus, the Messiah, the Lamb of God. Jesus was going to be a guilt offering for sin. A lamb sacrificed not for fellowship, but a sin offering. We see that, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. It's amazing but confusing. He will die as a sacrificial lamb, as a guilt offering, and yet... He will live again and prosper. (laughs) Jesus' death and resurrection foretold as the Lamb of God. God's Lamb foretold. And then, friends, we reach, as we saw in the Gospel of John, we reach Jesus. All of these pictures from the Old Testament, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, now they come into focus in the person of Jesus Himself. Jesus as God's perfect Lamb the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb. It was all about Jesus all along. We know the type of lamb that they're speaking of because once again, back in the Gospel of John chapter 1, it was a day earlier. It says, verse 29, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not as the sacrifices of the Old Testament. You say, well, if that blood wasn't effective because it was just an animal, why did they do it? Well, it was number one, teaching them about sin and the cost of sin. But they were doing it in faith. The Bible says that they were putting their faith not in the sacrifices, but in the God who commanded them to do that. Their faith was that God would provide the true sacrifice. The Bible says the faith of the Old Testament saints was ultimately in Jesus, the fulfillment as the Lamb of God. They were like writing post-dated checks 
on God's grace. It's a wonderful picture. Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God. He is truly effective, a sacrifice for sinners. He is the true Passover Lamb. 1 Corinthians, for instance, the Apostle Paul, writing to them, uses the picture of the Passover and the, and the concurrent feast of unleavened bread. Remember the Passover, the Passover meal. It begins a week of holy celebrations, of Sabbath keeping, of rest. And one thing they did is they, they had no leaven, no yeast, no, no, uh, no uh, rising agents in their house at all. They had to search the house top to bottom to get rid of the tiniest bit of yeast Because yeast and how it spread was a picture of sin and how difficult it was to cleanse your house of yeast and your life of sin. Well, the Apostle Paul uses that that Jewish practice as an illustration to the church in Corinth. He said, you're like a house full of yeast, full of sin. They had unrepentant sinners living godless lifestyles openly sinning in the church and nobody said anything about it they didn't want the awkward conversation they didn't want to look intolerant they wanted to look accepting but this was a brother and the apostle paul says clean your house of yeast disassociate send that guy packing and let god work in his heart till he repents and he uses the picture that they were proud of their house which was full of sin and yeast Look what he says in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 5. Your boasting's not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may have a new batch without yeast as you really, you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast. He's saying, clean your house. Set your house in order because the spiritual lamb has been sacrificed. Jesus is identified as the ultimate Passover lamb. It's a beautiful picture and a challenge to us today to look at our own houses and our own lives. What did that lamb accomplish? The sacrificial lamb was seen to pay the price for our sin. The wages of sin is death. For us, the price paid, the shed blood of Jesus, pays for our redemption, our atonement. He took the penalty. That's why Jesus, what He did on the cross is sometimes called the penal sacrificial atonement. It's atonement. It's substitutionary. He took your place and He took your punishment for your sin and He paid it all. The songs we sang this morning beautifully summarized what Jesus did for us. One of those beautiful pictures of the Lamb of God in Scripture is in Peter's first letter. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll begin reading a little earlier in verse 17. Peter says, Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus paid your price. 
Friends, that's a sobering thought. And yet that's what Jesus calls us to remember. Remember, remember what He's done for us. That's why we come to the Lord's table. That's why we celebrate that time together. But that's not the end of the story of the Lamb. As we sang today, you were joining in the song of heaven. You were singing straight out of God's songbook in the book of Revelation. And you were singing glory to the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. For what Jesus did for you as the Lamb of God will ring throughout eternity. The scars that He bears, the marks that He is a Lamb that was slain, He will bear for all eternity. There will never be a moment in eternity that you will not look at your Savior and see His love for you. His nail-pierced hands, the thorns of His brow, his pierced feet, his wounded side, he will bear that mark forever. Finally, we look at the Lamb. He is triumphant. The triumph of the Lamb. Praise God. The book of Revelation. We know we, we were in the first three chapters recently. The Apostle John sees Jesus, the risen Lord, his old friend by the Sea of Galilee, looking amazing transfigured and glorious as he saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration. But it was still Jesus, his friend, his Savior, who loved him. But then there comes a time where John is caught up into heaven and he is part of that incredible vision of what God's going to do in the future. And then they hit a turning point. In the great story of Revelation, John, standing with an angelic guide, they see the Father on the throne. And in the hand of God, in His right hand, is the scroll. And that scroll full of knowledge written on both sides contains God's plan for all the future, how He's going to bring this sinful world to conclusion and how He's going to institute His glorious kingdom forever and ever. But that scroll is sealed with seven seals. We have in ancient literature that the last will and testament of the Roman emperors was always sealed with seven separate seals because of how important it was. And speaking to the people of that age, these seven seals revealed that it was perfectly sealed. Who could open it? Who had the authority to break those seals? Heaven and earth are searched and no one can open the scroll. No one. It's like the old myth of the sword and the stone. The one who draws this sword will be the king of all England. Nobody could pull the sword out of the stone until young Arthur does. But in this case, this isn't myth. This is reality. No one is worthy to institute and act and open God's will for all mankind and for heaven and earth. And it says that Begin reading in Revelation chapter 5. I'll start a little earlier again. It says in verse 3, But no one on heaven and earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. That's amazing. Jesus, 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, foretold from the book of Genesis. He, the son of David, the eternal king on David's throne, is worthy to open the scrolls. And so you expect now the lion like Aslan from Narnia to jump onto the stage and take the scroll and to open it. And yet, to our amazement, when we see the lion, he's described this way. Verse 6, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing in the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Well, that's obviously symbolic. This is not a weird-looking little lamb with spider eyes. That would just be so creepy. This is Jesus. The horns speak of His power. The eyes speak of His knowledge. This is God incarnate. Jesus, omnipotent, omniscient. And the seven spirits in all the world speaks of perfect omnipresence. All-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere, Jesus. But the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah is now seen for who he is. He is a lamb who was slain, bearing the marks of his love for you. You're in the story. The blood the lamb has shed was shed for you, for John, for me. And we see him there. And he takes the scroll and he opens the seals and he brings about God's perfect conclusion for the story of this old world. It's amazing. And he receives the glory due him in his triumph. The elders, the living creatures and angels, 10,000 times 10,000 angels gather together and verse 12 says, in a loud voice they sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. The story of the Lamb ends in triumph. It's amazing. Amazing. Once I had the opportunity to share step by step how Jesus was the Lamb of God <laughs> with a, all people Rough, tough hockey players. I've shared it before. I, I did a series of messages in, in, in hockey chapel with the Medicine Hat Tigers. Guys, many of them have zero biblical knowledge. And I unfolded them the prophecies of the Passover lamb. And that when we hear that on the 14th of the month at twilight, the lamb was to be slain, that was the prediction of the date and the time of Jesus' death on the cross for us. That when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the shepherds were out in the fields because they had to be there when the, the mothers were burying their lambs. The Passover lambs were being born in the fields as well as in the stable in Bethlehem. And when Jesus died on the cross, that was the time where the evening sacrifice of an unblemished lamb was taking place at every step. It's Jesus. And I remember the guys came to me after and they said, this is incredible. They, it was, they were shocked by it. They said, has anybody else ever heard this? 
do they know how it fits so well? And I said, it's common knowledge, but most people just take it for granted. And it's, I saw it through fresh eyes how truly amazing it is that Jesus fulfills the role of the Lamb of God. And now people, we're called to respond to that Each week, I've tried to remind us that the names and titles of Jesus, they need a response, an action step. Any message you hear, you always need to ask yourself, so what? So what for me? How do I respond to this truth? Am I called to do something? Am I called to believe something? Am I blessed by something? As we've gone through the names of Jesus, the bread of life, it's obvious you eat the bread. You consume the Word of God and you grow by it. The Good Shepherd, what do you do with a shepherd? You follow your shepherd. The anointed prophet, priest, and king, you receive him as king of your life. Is Jesus your king? The vine. All life comes from the vine and you are called to make your life in him, abide in him. How do we abide in Jesus? Well, the Lamb. We have an action step for you today. Scripture tells us when it comes to the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, you are called to remember it. Don't forget what God has done for you. Keep it before you, before your children. Remember His love for you shown in His death on the cross. We're called to give thanks for His love shown to us, for His sacrifice. Scripture says, walk away from this place determined fresh and new by the grace of God to live a life worthy of of the price Jesus paid. Does the life you choose to live every day, is it in keeping with the price Jesus paid to redeem us? And we're called to glorify Him with our words, with our worship, and with our lives. Well, we'll begin in a small way by coming to the, to the table today. At this time, I'll call upon those who are going to serve with me to join me in the front. As we do that, as we do that, we'll read a familiar passage, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. He says, For for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Worthy is the Lamb. Remember his sacrifice. Let's join together. I'll call upon Lance to give thanks for the body of Christ given as our sacrifice. Lord, I just uh, I just want to remember you and say thank you so much, Jesus, for coming down to this earth for my sin and everybody's here, Lord. Uh, we can't repay it, but may we live a life that is worthy. And I just... Um, Pray that you may be glorified with it. And we just, we thank you for your body that was uh, put on the cross. Amen.
in God's perfect timing that Jesus came to the Passover meal a meal that spoke of lambs ages gone by who shed their blood that death would pass over those covered by it he gave new meaning to the elements that night revealed that it was always about him and what he was going to do for us on the very next day as he would give his life for us on the cross So it says at that meal he took the bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen. Later Jesus took the cup which reminds us of his shed blood for us. I'll call upon Pastor Dave to give thanks for the cup. Lord Jesus, you are the perfect lamb whose blood was poured out for us, for our sins, a gift that we cannot thank you enough for. And so as we take this cup, we thank you in remembrance of the gift you gave us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.
the Bible says that in the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. Stand with me together as we're dismissed from this place of worship to our places of ministry. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we join our voices with the voices of the angels as we say, worthy is the Lamb. Father, we've gathered together today to remember Jesus' love for us, shown in its fullness on Calvary's tree. Thank you, Lord, for the perfect one who came not to conquer in the power of a lion, but with the submission and obedience as the Lamb of God, willingly taking our sin upon himself, the sinless one, and taking it to the cross. We thank you, Lord, that the wrath of God was satisfied. Your justice was perfect and fulfilled in Jesus. And now, Lord, may we take that love and that grace that we've experienced and share it this week with all who cross our paths. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you and keep you. Have a great week.